Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the precious gift of your Son. Lord, I thank you that he is our great high priest. I thank you that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. Lord, I just I pray that this morning your spirit would work mightily in all of our hearts, that we would just grow in our love and affection for you, that our hearts would be inclined towards your son to appreciate him for who he truly is and to uh, marvel at the ministry that he has for us this morning as our great high priest. We just thank you so much and pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. To err is human. Even when we say to err is human, sometimes we err. (laughs) Got the same delay the first hour. We all make mistakes. It's just a part of our human nature. Sometimes we oversimplify things. Sometimes we complicate them beyond all imagination. Sometimes we just have errors of judgment. We choose one way when we should have gone the other. Some of them are very simple, like choosing to go to McDonald's instead of In-N-Out. That would be a simple error. Sometimes we mistakenly choose the off-white instead of the bright white when we're painting the ceilings in our house. Sometimes we take the freeway at rush hour when we should have taken the surface streets, which would have saved us all of five minutes. Sometimes we accidentally put decaf in the coffee maker and then wonder why we've got this headache that just won't go away all day long. These are all very simple mistakes. But some of them, some of the mistakes that we make can be a little bit larger. Maybe not life-shattering mistakes, but they can take its hole, at least in the short term. Like perhaps taking the wrong class at college and getting that one particular teacher who just hates everything that you stand for. But you have to suffer through that for 16 weeks or shorter, if you're on the quarter system. Or you could be overcommitting to activities at your kid's school. Or perhaps you went online and noticed all the prices in Hawaii are so much cheaper. And then when you get there, it's just rain, rain, rain all around. These are middle-of-the-road mistakes. They're, they're not life-shattering, but they're kind of annoying. My wife and I had one of these. We planned our wedding around Valentine's Day. Shame on us, according to the flower coordinator, who said, now all your flowers are going to cost three times as much. These are all middle-of-the-road errors that overall don't really make too much of a difference in our lives. But sometimes we make larger errors that do change our lives, like buying a house with a crumbling foundation or moving across the country for that one job that you've been offered only to realize that you'd been laid off a week later. That's what happened to my dad, actually. Or you could be not spending enough time with your kids because your career is just so pressing. These are huge mistakes that we can make. Huge. But for as big as these are, for as bad as these mistakes are, there's an even greater mistake that doesn't just impact the rest of our lives, but for all of eternity. And that error is to get Jesus wrong. When we look around us, throughout the whole culture, you you'd only have to go down the street, pull someone to the side, and say, what do you think about Jesus? You're liable to get a 
a broad range of responses. Some might say that, well, Jesus never existed. He's just a historical figment of a bunch of people who wanted to control a bunch of other people, so they invented this guy named Jesus. They said he did all these wonderful things, but it's really just to control people and manipulate them. Others may say more graciously that, well, Jesus was just a very wise teacher. You've heard that one, right? Jesus is just a really wise guy. Not the mafia type, the uh, wisdom type. Jesus is a wise teacher. If you were to talk to a Muslim, they would say that Jesus is a prophet of Allah. That he was a, a really important man, so important that Allah chose him to be a prophet. If you talk to a liberal German Christian professor, he would say that Jesus is just a normal human being. Now, when you look at all of these answers that the culture gives to who Jesus is, they are all fundamentally lacking something majorly important. Because Jesus was very wise, and Jesus was a human, Jesus was a prophet, but what are they missing? The deity of Jesus. That Jesus is God incarnate. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in our zeal to show that Jesus is God, I fear that many of us in this room, myself included, have forgotten who Jesus truly is. We so put so much emphasis on the fact that he is God because our culture goes the exact other way, but we forget that Jesus is just as much a human as he is God. And in so doing, we split Jesus in half and remove one of the most critical and vital parts of who Jesus is and was. This morning, our passage is going to speak directly to this fact. This morning, we're going to see the humanity of Jesus on full display. We're going to see him as our great high priest. I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it's such a great corrective to our thinking. And don't get me wrong, please do not walk out of here thinking that I am saying that Jesus was not God. I am not saying that. Jesus is God, but we need to balance that with the fact that Jesus is also fully human and fully man. And in his humanity, he is just like us. And in his humanity, he has experienced the things that we have experienced. You see, Job, when he was living on this earth and uh, someone wrote down his words, or perhaps he wrote down his own words, he was complaining to God. I believe it was in chapter 9. I totally forgot to look up the reference. But around that area, Job sees his sin. Job looks at himself. He sees that he is a sinful man. And he sees God as a holy, transcendent being who has nothing to do with sin. And he sees the problem there. These are two totally irreconcilable things. It's oil and water. They don't mix. A holy God cannot mix with sinful humans. It's impossible. And Job Job cries out. He, He laments, why can't there be an arbiter? Why can't there be a mediator between us? Why can't there be someone who puts his arm around God and brings him along and puts his arm around us, mankind, and brings us together to make peace. He laments the fact that there is no mediator between God and man. Of course, 
thousands of years later, we would have that mediator. We would have the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God so he can bring God to the table. Fully man so he can bring man to the table and so make peace through his blood on the cross. But if we remove the humanity of God, of Jesus, we lose that mediation. If Jesus is not human, then he can't bring us along. If he's not God, he can't bring God to the table either. So both are vitally important to how we see Jesus Christ. If you remove one, the whole thing falls apart. We must have both. And in our thinking, we must have both of them. This morning, we're going to see three reasons you need Jesus as your priest. Three reasons you need Jesus as your priest. We got simple three points. First off, his ascended position gives you security in verse 14. His triumphant perseverance gives you strength in 15. And his gracious power gives you certainty. Let me read our passage this morning. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a beautiful passage. And before we actually get into our passage, I need to talk a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Please stay with me. I know sometimes these introductory materials can be a little bit boring and a little bit tedious. There's much controversy over the book of Hebrews, so hopefully the controversy at least will keep you engaged. The, the first thing that we don't even know necessarily explicitly who the author of this book is. Nowhere in the book of Hebrews does it say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the grace of God, to the saints in... Israel? No, not quite. We don't even know who it was written to or by. But, fortunately, we do have the testimony of the early church. The early church fathers who lived and knew these people who wrote these books wrote also their own books and named who wrote the biblical books. That's how we know that Matthew wrote Matthew and John wrote John, is the testimony of the early church. And you see, for the first 300 years... Everyone in the church believed that Paul wrote this letter. Of course, then you get to this one guy named Origen, and one of my historical theo professors said, Origen was spectacularly right when he was right, but horrifically wrong when he was wrong. And Origen says, who wrote the gospel of, to the Hebrew, or the book to the Hebrews? God only knows. So there's your full disclosure. Origen was the guy that introduced the doubts. I take it as Paul. I'm going to continue saying Paul this morning. For those of you who believe that Luke or Apollos wrote it, please don't uh, excommunicate me over this simple fact. It's just for simplicity's sake. And if you disagree that Paul didn't write this, then it's okay. There are far bigger things to discuss and debate over. But I believe it was Paul, and so I am going to use the name Paul. But if you disagree, that's okay. Next, we need to look at the recipients. And this is really important, especially for this particular passage. We need to know who this book was written to so that we can learn a little bit about their background, a little bit about their context, and that kind of colors how we look at the passage itself. And and when we look at the book itself, we see, and also church history, 
points to the fact that these recipients were ethnically Jewish people who were a part of the synagogue dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, who were a part of tight-knit Jewish communities who then got saved. They were ethnically Jewish people who lived in the Jewish religion, who were committed Jews, and then they found Jesus. Or Jesus found them. They, they realized who Jesus was, their long-awaited Messiah. And as a response to that, their once close-knit community cut them off completely. Their, their synagogue, which used to be a commercial center as well, excommunicated them. They were no longer to come into it. They were no longer allowed to associate with their friends. They were no longer invited to the family gatherings. They were the scum of the earth to their own friends and family. Does that ring a bell for some of us in this room? I know Thanksgiving's coming up. It's a fresh reminder for some of us when we're sitting around the table and there happens to be an outnumbering of unbelievers who continue to mock you. This passage will speak to you directly this morning. What's more, these people were being persecuted actively. Hebrews 10, 32 through 35 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They were thrown out of these synagogues. Bands of mobs would probably come around and steal from these people's houses specifically because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. These people were being persecuted and cut off. Now we have to ask, why on earth was this letter even written? So we've got Paul writing to a group of uh, Christians who used to be Jewish under persecution. Now, why on earth did Paul even write this letter? Well, you see, these people were under a very difficult situation. I think we can all agree that having your friends and family cut you off completely would have been a very difficult thing to live through. And so they're thinking in their minds, everything used to be perfectly fine when I was a good Jew. Everything was perfectly fine when I was under the law of Moses. Everything was perfectly fine when, before I came to know Jesus. What if, what if I just hide out in that again? What, I'm not, I'm not going to renounce Jesus completely. I'm not going to disavow him for the rest of my life. I'm just going to do it temporarily, just for right now, just for a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, until all this persecution stuff has died down, until all these uh, angry tempers have cooled down, until uh, reason has taken its place again. And then as soon as everyone's calmed down about this whole Jesus thing, then I'll go back to it, because it'll be safer. Do you see what they were thinking there? They were thinking, let's just hide out. We're going to set him aside for just a little bit. But then we'll take him back. We promise. We promise we're going to take him back. But just for right now, it's so hard. It's so difficult. I just can't do it anymore. Paul gets wind of this. Paul hears about this, and he writes this letter. And it's a very strongly worded letter 
One of my professors said it's the Galatians to the Hebrews rather than Galatians to the Gentiles. It's a strongly worded letter that in its essence says that if you go back to the old ways of things, there is no return. If you go back even temporarily to the old way of doing things, if you trade Jesus for Moses, then it's like you're trampling Jesus' blood into the ground. If you go back to the old ways, you are committing high treason against Jesus. And you cannot come back from that. Why so harsh? Why is this so difficult? Why is it an all or nothing? Why, if you go this way and try to return, it just can't work? Why so harsh, Paul? Because Jesus is better. And this, this, if you wanted to summarize the entire book of Hebrews in one word, it's this. Better. Jesus is better than angels. That's chapter 1. Jesus is better than Moses, chapter 3. And then chapters 4 through 10, Jesus is better than Aaron. Aaron being the high priest of Israel. Jesus is so much better than anything you could possibly dream of. Jesus is better than these uh, giants of the faith in the Old Testament. Jesus gives a better covenant. The new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Jesus is a better high priest, as we're going to see this morning, than Aaron ever could have been. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses, the guy who spoke to God face to face as though to a friend. Jesus is better than him because Jesus is God. Jesus is so much better that to turn from him to something so insignificant as the Old Covenant law, to turn to something so insignificant as the sacrifices, is to basically spit in Jesus' face. That's the background to this book. Jesus is better. Think of, think of something. Think of anything. Jesus is better than it. Anything you could possibly dream of, Jesus is better. And as I said, this this passage before us this morning is going to directly talk about the greatness of Jesus as our high priest. And a priest is a human person. We're going to see this morning Jesus' humanity on full display, and I pray that our hearts would just melt before the beauty and splendor of our Savior as a human being while also being God. So, now, at long last, we can dive into our passage, but keep in mind that these people were considering deserting Jesus just for a short period of time. And Paul says, don't do it, because Jesus is so much better. So now we go into our first point. Three reasons why you need Jesus as your priest. His ascended position gives you security. His ascended position gives you security. Paul writes in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He he starts a new section in the grand scheme of the book. He he had just finished talking about a warning passage where, where he brought up that first generation of Israel. Or out of Egypt, I'm sorry, of Israel. Do you guys remember those people? 
the ones that were slaves in captivity, building Jewish mon- or Egyptian monuments. I'm all over the place today. They were delivered by the hand of God. These people saw every single one of the plagues. They were marched and backed up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is about to dive in and kill them all. And they watch as God parts the sea and they walk across on dry ground. It's not muddy silt. It's dry ground. They get to the other side. They watch as the water kills every single Egyptian in that army. They march into the wilderness. They watch as God delivers them food from heaven. Manna coming down from heaven to nourish them. They watch as water gushes forth out of a rock. And what's their response to all this? Oh, why are we here? I want to go back to Egypt with us garlic and leeks. Why would God bring us out here? This is terrible. They saw more of God than any generation in all of Israel. And yet they were the biggest complainers in the world. The Greek term, this is totally for free, is gaguzmas. Everyone say that. Gaguzmas. 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 If you hear it's kind of a murmuring, muttering under your breath. It's kind of a, uh, it's called an onomatopoetic word where it sounds like what it's describing. Gaguzmas, gaguzmas. Paul talks about them and says, if you go back from Jesus, you are worse than that first generation out of Israel. Because they saw the hand of God working in their lives. They saw the hand of God delivering them from famine, from the Egyptian armies. And yet they still didn't believe. Now, Christians can see God himself in Jesus Christ. And if we turn from him, we're far worse than that first generation ever was. Because Jesus is better. But going in, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He transitions into this new section on Jesus as the high priest. He, he talks about Jesus is in a new ministry role as our great high priest. The Greek literally here is having, therefore, a great high priest. Paul is emphatic that we have him. And it's a continuous verb. It's not just we had him or we have him now and won't in the future or one day in the future we'll have him. No, it's continuous that entire time. We have a great high priest now, tomorrow, and forevermore. We have a great high priest in heaven. And Jesus is given a very unique name here. He's called the great high priest. Now, if you survey your your Bible, you'll find that there are many, many men who are high priests. You've got Aaron as the first high priest. You've got Caiaphas as another high priest of questionable moral character. But many men are high priests. But there is only one who is called the great high priest, and that is Jesus, because he is a better high priest. He is the great high priest. The early church was on to something. When they looked at their Old Testament, they saw three offices in Israel. They saw three functions that different men could take, but never at the same time. They saw a king, they saw a prophet, and then they saw a priest. No man could ever hold any two of those offices at any one time. 
In fact, the Bible is filled with people who tried but radically failed. Uzziah is one of them. He was king of Israel, and he gets so puffed up over all of his military successes that he thinks, I'm going to go into the temple, and I'm going to go offer some incense in a priestly fashion, because I am the greatest king ever. What happens to him? God strikes him with leprosy, and he's a social pariah for the rest of his life. No man could hold more than one of those offices. That's because... It was all in anticipation of the great high priest who was also king, who was also prophet. I think overall we have a very good understanding of Jesus as prophet. I think most of us in this room know Jesus as prophet. We see in the first chapter of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as the representation of God. We're going to get to it when Kempis returns that Jesus is the image of the invisible God in Colossians. Jesus perfectly represents God to humans. Jesus exposits and reveals God to us because he is God. He's, He's the greatest prophet that has ever lived. I think we also have a good understanding of Jesus as king. We all long for the day when Christ's kingdom will come. And even now, he is reigning upon his throne. He he is king. He's God. How could he not be ruling? But the one that I fear that we have often neglected, and possibly it's from the Reformation, that, that pendulum swinging the other way, is we have not fully thought about Jesus as our priest. We know him as prophet. We know him as king. But do you know him truly as your priest? It's part of the reason why I love this passage so much is that it, it, it solves a need that I desperately have in my own heart. What was a priest? What was a priest in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, a priest was essentially someone who stood between God and man. It was a person who was appointed from the people who would stand as a buffer, if you will, between a holy God and a very sinful people. Israel throughout its entire history was rebellious time and time again. And they needed priests to stand between God and them. They even asked for some at one point in time. But the essential role of a priest is to minister for the people to God. And to stand for them. To help them along. So when we read in scripture that... Jesus is our great high priest. He stands above the rest. In the Old Testament, there were many, many priests, but only one high priest continually. And he had a lifetime uh, tenure in that office. Once a high priest, you were the high priest for the rest of your life. Or that's how it was supposed to be. And that high priest was kind of the governor over the temple. But he did one other very important thing. He he did one thing that was entirely unique that no other priest was able to do. Well, there are a couple things, but one thing in particular that should stand out in everyone's mind, and it's found in Leviticus 16. Today it's called Yom Kippur. In the Old Testament, it was called the Day of Atonement. And this high priest, this brave, brave man, would be required to carry out certain ceremonial purifications and rituals in preparation for the moment when he would walk through the veil of the holy into holy place into the holy of holies. Now, if you 
look at the temple, there's concentric circles. And the, the two smallest circles, you've got the holy of holies and then the holy place outside of it. People could go into the holy place, but no one could go into the holy of holies except for this one time of the year. And so this, this high priest would take a bowl of blood, he would walk through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and if everything was right in his own heart beforehand, he would take the blood and he would sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. Which, by the way, can you imagine after years and years of this, how gross that Ark of the Covenant must have been with all the blood splattered on it? But that was a picture of what had to happen in Jesus. That's if it all went right. What if it went wrong? Well, if he didn't do things correctly, God's holiness would strike him dead right then and there. And so what they started doing as a practicality is tying a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if things went poorly, if they stopped hearing things rattling about, and perhaps if they heard a thunk on the floor, then they could slowly drag him out because a dead body would have defiled the space. That's the picture that Paul has set up for us in this passage. That's the picture of the high priest entering into that veil, into the holy of holies, and making a a sacrifice. But since Jesus is so much better than any high priest who has ever lived, he doesn't pass through a veil. He passes through the heavens. He doesn't pass through a curtain made with human hands. He passes through the atmosphere into the heavens. He ascends from the earth to the throne room of God where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And there he stays. So much has not been written about the ascension. I'll never forget when Kempis was teaching through the book of Acts in Procopane. He made the comment that books and books to fill up multiple shelves in a library have been written on the resurrection of Christ. People have devoted their entire lives to writing on the resurrection but he could not find a single book on the ascension of Jesus Christ. What would happen if Jesus never ascended? What would our lives be like? What if he stayed on earth after his resurrection? What if he stayed here? Well, not very good things would happen. (laughs) Maybe he rose from the dead, but he just stayed here. What, What would that mean for us? Well, first off, it would mean that Jesus is not in the position that he's in right now. Jesus would not be seated at the right hand of the Father on our behalf, ministering for us. Jesus would not be seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and me. Jesus would not be there ministering to us. He would be on earth somewhere. Who knows where? Secondly, Jesus would be limited to a certain place on earth. But most importantly, we would be missing someone hugely important to our lives. Wouldn't we? What did Jesus tell his disciples in the upper room? He said, I am leaving you, but take heart. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I am sending someone to you. I'm sending my spirit to you. If Jesus never ascended, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? How difficult our lives would be? Once again, Jesus is a better high priest. He is a better person than anything that has come before him. 
Because we have God dwelling within us. If you are saved, you have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within you, helping you, spurring you on to the good works that God has set before the foundations of the earth for you to do. Can I tell you something? I'm going to tell you anyway. If you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, you are better than Moses. Moses would have longed for the indwelling presence of God's Spirit in his heart. The man who saw God face to face, who spoke with him as though he were a friend, the one who saw the glory or the goodness of the Lord because he couldn't withstand the holiness and glory of him, the one who saw all these things, you are in a better position than he is because you have God's Spirit. Let that sink in for a minute. Kind of crazy to think about. Moses! And yet you are better off than he is. So important that Jesus ascended because we have his Spirit. So important. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Paul writes, Jesus, the Son of God. Here he he uses two names of our Lord. He uses the human name, Jesus. This was the name given to Mary by the angel to call Jesus. This is his human name. God saves. It implies that in Jesus we find one who has compassion on human beings. But not only is he Jesus, he is also the Son of God, which means that he is divine. He has the power to change things. He's not some impotent God who longs to do something but has no power to actually change it. He is compassionate upon us because he is Jesus, and he has power to change things because he is the Son of God. What a great high priest we have. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that Jesus, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God? Well, it happens that Paul tells us, let us hold fast our confession. Paul says that in light of the ascension, in light of the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, praying for you, praying for me, we need to hold fast to our confession. We need to stand firm in what we have committed to. We need to stay the course and glorify God in everything that we do. For these Hebrew Christians, it meant not to go back. It meant to withstand the persecution. It meant to deal with people stealing things from you. It meant to deal with the public humiliation. It meant one day to deal with people wanting to take your own life. Because Jesus is better, and Jesus is at the right hand of God. For us in this room, maybe it's not so dire as the Hebrew Christians had it. But we can relate, can't we? Like I said, Thanksgiving is coming up. How many of you in this room are one of the few Christians in your family? And you're going to be sitting around that Thanksgiving table, and you're going to have that awkward conversation where everyone gangs up on you and ridicules you and what you stand for. Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for you in that moment. How many of you are in a difficult situation with with your coworkers or even your employer, knowing that you're a Christian and slighting you in different ways? There are many of you who are students who are in classes that are openly opposed to everything that you believe in. 
I was talking to one of our college students this past week, and he was telling me about a paper that he had turned in for a Jewish studies class at a secular university that was a humanities credit that he took. He mentioned Jesus in it. That was the only thing that was marked off, and he got a failing grade for it. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne praying for him right now. No matter what you are going through, he is praying for you that you would be triumphant through the trial, that you would come through victorious through the temptation. He is praying for you as your great high priest. How encouraging is that? How precious is that? Because he is there, we must stand firm. We must stand tall for Christ. We must take the punches. We must receive the blows because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Jesus is better. And as though this were not enough, if this weren't enough to stagger our minds, to, to take our hearts captive by the beauty of our high priest, Paul continues in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this leads us to our second point, our second reason why you need Jesus as your priest, and that is because his triumphant perseverance gives you strength. His triumphant perseverance gives you strength. Paul says in this verse, he he gives us a double negative. Did you notice that? He says, we do not have someone who is unable to sympathize. Now, this actually implies that there was someone laying an objection that perhaps Jesus, though he may be in a position of authority, though he may be ascended on high, doesn't actually care about us. Look at all the things going on with us. My house was burned down because I believe in Jesus. Clearly, he doesn't care about me whatsoever. Paul says that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. He's not some ivory tower theologian looking down upon the earth and thinking, hmm, I wonder what that's like. Maybe we'll try this, see if that helps. He's not some scientist totally disconnected with his experiments. He is someone who personally sympathizes with us and our weaknesses. Now, there's actually some precedent for high priests not caring about their people. Have you ever read through the whole Bible? You've gotten to the end of the Old Testament, and then you start reading Matthew, and you think, is this even the same planet that we're on? Things are totally different. What on earth happened from Ezra to Jesus? Well, a lot actually happened, which is why there's such a dramatic contrast. But one of the most important things for our discussion this morning is that the rulers of the land totally threw it all away. There was a a family in around 150 years before Christ was born called the Maccabees fairly well-known name, Judas Maccabee. He, he sits around the campfire with his sons and, and a Greek contingent comes in and they start messing everyone up and uh, telling them they can't read their Bibles and things like that. And Judas says to his sons, boys, get your swords. We're going to take care of this. And they led a revolt that overthrew the Greek rule of the region. 
Unfortunately, they established their own dynasty of kings, but they also wanted to be priests. And so what eventually happened, the, the pinnacle of it all, was a man by the name of Alexander Janaeus. He was a particularly hated Maccabee. He, he lived about a hundred years before Christ was born, and he was the most vile and wicked person that they all loved to hate. He, he bought the high priesthood. He was the highest bidder. It was a completely political office, and he hated the people that he served. Can you imagine a high priest who hates the people that he stands before God for? What good is that? Janaeus led, was one of the, there was actually a civil war underneath his rule, and his armies killed and slaughtered 50,000 of his fellow Jews. And when he won the war, just to make a point, he decided to crucify 900 more. Just to make a point. This was the high priest of Israel. Didn't care. Didn't sympathize with the people. And things didn't get any better when Jesus was around. What, what did we see in John eleven forty nine? John is so ironic and hysterical when he writes that Caiaphas, he describes him as the high priest that year. What did we say the high priest office was? Lifetime. But Caiaphas is the high priest that year, implying there would be a different one the next year, and there was probably a different one before him. The high priesthood of Israel had turned into a purely political office and nothing more. And the people who occupied that office hated the ones they were supposed to represent. Jesus is nothing like those people. Even though these Hebrews knew of these high priests, Paul says that he is nothing like them. He is better than them in so much greater way than you could possibly imagine. He can sympathize with us. He does enjoy us. He does care for us. Unlike Alexander Janaeus and unlike Caiaphas. Jesus is not like these power-hungry men who want a position rather than ministry. Paul writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I love this term, sympathize. I love it. Literally in the Greek, if you, it, it's a compound word. Literally, it just means suffer with. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to suffer with us. Or, put another way, we have a high priest who suffers with us. He understands our weaknesses because he experienced them. It's not that he read a textbook on what it's like to be a human being and learned that intellectual knowledge. He, of course, knew it before he became a man. When Christ created things, when he was the agent of the Father in creation, he knew what it was like to be a fallen man in a fallen world. But when he came as God in the flesh, he experienced it. He learned it from experience, which is a deeper knowledge. All of you can attest to that. Reading about a foreign country and then going on a mission trip there are two totally different things. Think about this. In the incarnation, the infinite, eternal God of the universe took on human flesh and lived a normal life just like you and me. This means that his muscles hurt after lifting that lumber to build the house with his dad, Joseph. This means that when he was a little toddler, even though he created languages at Babel, as a toddler, he wandered about the household babbling out Greek and Aramaic words. 
the creator of languages had to learn them just like you and I did, just like our children are right now. Think about that. Though he designed metabolic pathways and digestion, he suffered from hunger and thirst. He lived a normal human life. He was sick. Jesus got illnesses. He got cuts and bruises. He got splinters from the wood. He was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was mentally drained at times. Do you ever read in the Gospels where it's just he wants to be by himself for just a little bit, but the crowds keep following him everywhere he possibly goes? He just wants a little brief moment to himself and to pray to his father. He experienced physical weakness too. He was a normal human just like you and just like me. And he happened to be God. But that is our great high priest. As if this weren't enough, Paul continues to increase our wonder and awe. He, he not only sympathizes with our human weaknesses, our physical weaknesses, but he also sympathizes with our spiritual weaknesses. Because Paul writes, he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Not only did Jesus experience physical weakness, but spiritual as well. Matthew 4 records Jesus going out into the wilderness and spending 40 days there without food or water. Can you imagine? More than a month without any nourishment. You'd be exceedingly hungry. And who should happen by? Oh, just the prince of the demons. The tempter of all men, the the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies, the tempter, Satan, comes along and says, well, Jesus, you've got power. Make some bread. Can you imagine what that bread must have tasted like? Divinely made bread on a 40-day empty stomach? Oh, that must have been so tempting for Jesus. But he resisted. Satan tempted Jesus to reveal himself to Jerusalem and circumvent the whole crucifixion thing. Go around it. Satan also tempted Jesus to worship an idol. Satan tempted Jesus to worship Satan. I don't know how that one worked, but apparently Satan thought it was a good idea to tempt Jesus by worshiping Satan. Jesus was tempted by this chief ruler of the demons. It wasn't some second-rate demon. He was the grand poobah of the demon world. And yet, he was without sin. He experienced the greatest temptation, yet he was without sin. One of the commentators on this passage so astutely wrote about when we face temptations, when we face a temptation to sin, when, when we're looking at that sin and we're thinking, ooh, that looks so good. We haven't committed the sin yet, but we're just, we're looking at the sin. We're examining the sin. We're, we're thinking about ways of justifying doing that particular sin. We're, we're analyzing how we can possibly get away with it. We're being tempted to commit that sin in some way. And, and the longer we resist it, the longer we withstand, the longer we hold back, the more intense that temptation comes, Right? You've resisted temptation for a while, and then all of a sudden it strikes you as this overwhelming power and urge to commit that particular sin. And we as humans, we have an escape hatch, right? If that temptation becomes so great, so painful, all we have to do is give in to the sin, right? Not, not that that's a good thing. We have to deal with the consequences of that sin later on, but the, we have a way out. Jesus never took that way out. 
Jesus withstood that temptation. And it was great agony. I want you to turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22. I'll do this very quickly. This is perhaps the greatest temptation the world has ever seen. Ever. Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. And he came, that is Jesus, out and went, as it was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You see, Jesus here sees the crucifixion, the impending agony of the cross. He sees the wrath of God about to be poured out upon him for the sins of the world. He, he sees the shame. He sees the ridicule. He sees the scourges and the nails and the hammers. And he says, I don't want to do it. How more human can you get? Jesus is so human in this moment. He, he looks at the pain. He looks at the suffering. Who in here would voluntarily go to be crucified? You didn't get anything from it. Your family wasn't being threatened or anything. It was just, hey, who wants to go get crucified? Not a single person in their right mind would do that. Jesus is in his right mind and doesn't want to do it. And he prays. Mark 14 records, and he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want the pain and the agony In this moment, Jesus is so human. He is so weak. He asks, Daddy, please take it away. In this moment, Jesus is being tempted to desert the plan of God. Do you see that? He's being tempted to go around the cross. He's being tempted to change the plan, to go to plan B, as it were. He doesn't want to do it. But then he prays, nevertheless, my, not my will be done, but yours. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is how horrible this temptation was, that Jesus needed a minister from heaven to come alongside of him to strengthen him. Can you imagine what it must be like, that, that angel? This is my creator, and I'm serving him by helping him not die from the ang- anguish and agony. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The trial and battle of this temptation was so great that Jesus' blood pressure got so high that the capillaries in his forehead burst from the stress of the situation so that he sweat drops of blood. I don't know about you, but I've never experienced anything like that. And yet, he was without sin. This is our great high priest. He he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to go through these things. And he stands at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for you as you battle that sickness. He prays for you as you work through that debilitating injury. He prays for you as you go through the temptation that keeps hounding you and plaguing you. 
How many times must Jesus have been tempted to desert the plan of God, but now it was the hour at hand of his hour had come. He knows what it's like to battle sin on a constant basis. He never experienced the sin itself, but he experienced everything leading up to it. He is a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be a human because he was human and is human, and he experienced it all. Jesus knows how hard it is living in the sin-soaked world. You know what he said in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount? Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow has enough worries for itself. Jesus got it. Jesus understood what it was like and how difficult it was. And that one who understands is seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and praying for me. How incredible is that? What do we do in light of this? Paul gives his own application in verse 16 where he he writes, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've got to go very quickly, but, but the result of this, the, the result of having Jesus by the Father's side is that we need to approach him. We have such a great high priest. How could we not make use of him? How tragic is it that we have this compassionate, powerful, understanding one, and yet we never actually approach him? We must continually approach him. Not a once and once for all type thing, but we must do it on a daily basis, now, tomorrow, and forevermore. We must approach our great high priest because you know what? He wants us to. May we forever put to death the concept that Jesus somehow begrudgingly cares for us. May we forever put that away from our minds that Jesus is this grumpy, crotchety old guy who who just kind of dispenses grace as needed. And and he doesn't really enjoy it, but he just does it because it's required. Let us put that to death forevermore. You want proof of that? I I would go there if we had the time, but time is failing us. But go to John chapter 4 later on today. Read John chapter 4, that incredible passage. Let me me just summarize in, in broad sweeps what happens. John, uh, John records that Jesus and his disciples are traveling into the land of Samaria. And Jesus is so dog-tired from the journey that he finds the well, he goes over, and he collapses on it. He falls down on the well because he is just so darn tired. And, and he's so tired that the disciples have to leave him there in the heat of the day, go on into the city so that they can buy food and provisions to bring back to him, to strengthen him. This is the weakness of our human savior. He, he's so tired that his disciples have to go on ahead. What happens? You know the story. This woman, this social pariah, comes out, draws water in the heat of the day, in the most inopportune time, and Jesus strikes up a conversation. Starts talking with this woman. Long story short, she gets saved. She's so excited that she has found the Messiah that she runs into the village. She starts telling everyone that she can possibly find, I found the Messiah. I found him. He's here in our village. Come see him. Meanwhile, the disciples come back. They get to Jesus. They pull out the food from their bag and say, hey, Jesus, here's the food. And what does Jesus do? 
No, I don't want it. Well, what gives, Jesus? You just collapsed here a minute ago, and now the very thing that would help you, you're rejecting. Well, reading a little bit in between the lines and the white spaces here, essentially, when Jesus saw this woman getting saved, he got an adrenaline rush. He no longer needed the food because it was only going to slow him down. There were souls to be saved. There were people to be added to the kingdom, and that excited him. Isn't that a precious picture of our Savior? That he wanted to see people saved, and he was overjoyed at the fact that an entire village was about to enter into his kingdom. And he even says, I I have my own food. It's to do the will of my Father. Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants to care for you. He is our faithful high priest. He is our compassionate God who stands at the throne of the Father. I think it's so perfectly providential that today is Orphan Sunday. About three years ago, my wife and I were sitting right around there, and we heard a message from Tim Carnes on, on caring for orphans. And this passage gives me so much hope. Today we have two beautiful little girls in our care. I don't know if they're going to stay. I don't know if they're going to go. But I have hope that if God saved them, they will have a compassionate high priest. Because let's face it, I had a great childhood. I had two parents who loved me and my sisters, uh, my brother and sister completely. I have no idea what our little girls went through before they came to us. I have no idea even how to relate to the hurt and the neglect that they've had. But I know that if, if the Lord saves them, They will have a high priest who has been despised and rejected by men. They'll have a great high priest who knows what it's like to be neglected, to be all alone. And he will care for them. He will pray to them, to the Father for them. How encouraging is that? How precious. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this passage. Lord, I thank you for your kindness that you've given to us in our great high priest. Lord, I pray that we would ever draw near to him, that we would just experience the joy that he has in helping us, in giving us grace, in helping us in the time of need, in the proper time, proper season. May he encourage us to fight the sin in our own lives. May he encourage us to stand firm in our convictions, Lord. May he just minister to us as he longs to. And we just thank you so much for your spirit and for the grace that you've given us. And that's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.